This is a cultural review and community interview podcast for everyone who thinks they might have an affinity for human beings and thinks they are worth having around. Today we'll review a song by musical group Deep Forest and speak with Fred. My name is Maxime, and I like people quite a lot. I even like to live with them. I'm not sure when it started, but over the years, it has gradually grown stronger, and now I feel I need to talk about it before evil time-traveling artificial intelligence comes back to stop us. Our goal today will be to change the future so AI will never have extinguished human beings from the Earth. Therefore, in each episode, I will ask questions of people who are trying to live with others and make their human-sized world a little better for everyone. My backup plan is to just play music and describe art that makes me feel something, so the cold omnispectrum analysis scanners of the 22nd century can understand why life is best left undestroyed. It is April 2018. This is Episode 1, Seven Questions to Save Humanity. In a relatively removed and quite peaceful location in Northern California, I sat with my first subject to develop seven critical questions on human issues like the environment, living together, and what it means to be a part of the experience of caring that life exists. Check, check, test. Could you say something, Fred? Hello, this is Fred. Hello, how are you? Great. Um, I have to speak a little louder, so don't mind me if I lean into this. Okay. Um, Am I in the right place here, or is this uni- omnidirectional, unidirectional? Yeah, it'll go to you, okay, cool. and All it'll right. record to me. Um, 
what's your name? Seems like a dumb question, but um, mm -hmm. how do you? This is a lie detector test. No. State your name. <laughs> <laughs> Were you born on so? No. Bing, 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 bing. You're lying. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, well, I'll give a quick intro. Okay. Yeah. What? What's? What's your name, and how do you identify? Mm -hmm. So I'm Fred. Fred Clamped, and I'm living here at Winsoul. And I consider myself to be an energy farmer. And an energy farmer, basically just like any other farmer, but instead of planting seeds to grow vegetables, I like to plant seeds and harness energy from nature, whether it be solar, the wind, biomass from trees, uh, even biochar. Probably my favorite form of energy to harvest is gravity. So far, no corporations has figured out how to own gravity. Um, and gravity is amazing. Even the idea, the concept of cold air sinking and hot air rising is based on gravity. So a lot of design decisions I make are based on these kind of things. And I also really enjoy permaculture. And I was a big student of Victor Schauberger and his living energy stuff. Uh, several months ago, or several years ago. Okay, next. Uh, what is your criteria for interacting with Earth's resources? <laughs> it's basically follows the permaculture, 12 steps, uh, the observations, the assessments, uh, inventories, if you will. Um, I'm a firm believer that any building or even small communities, small villages, should be able to function based on the resources that Mother Nature provides within like a five-kilometer circle. And if whatever it is that you're doing cannot be provided by what nature's bounty provides you, then I would invite you to rethink what it is that you're doing. Uh, so for me, it's part of a demand and supply. Everything in the world out there now is supply, energy supply. Energy supply is sexy. It's cool. Mm -hmm. How many solar panels can we put up? How can we put wind generators up there? But demand, trying to change human behavior to use less shit, that's boring. You know, and people don't want to give stuff up. They don't want to do less. Mm. But yet that's really the heart of the matter. That's why we've effed up our planet so much is because we constantly increase our standard of living. We demand more and more stuff. We're into instant gratification. Heaven forbid that you should go to a light switch, flip the switch, and within a millisecond not have the light come on. Oh, my God, what's wrong with the world? Or that you go to a water faucet. You know, it's a good explanation in my kitchen here. I'm pointing to my Buddha faucet that if I turn that on, there's a little tiny little dribble of water. And then there's another sink behind that that is a high pressure. And so I always invite people, if you really want to get into a sustainable, simplistic life, turn down the water pressure on your bathroom faucet and see how perplexing it gets to just have a tiny little stream of water that takes you exactly two seconds extra to wash your hands with and how frustrating that is. And that gives you an idea of the psychological addiction that we have 
in, in our design of our infrastructure, of our living systems and buildings. So I follow observation, number one, to answer your question, and then number two, in any design that I do, is I call it evolutionary design, it evolves on its own over time, is to have multifunctional things. Everything that we do should have four or five things that it provides. Mm, that's great. Um, nature, I, I, I dare somebody to find something in nature, a tree, an animal, a blade of grass, that does not have five or six things that it provides as far as nutrients to the soil, carbon sequestration, growth through uh, uh, solar, what do they call it? Oh, photosynthesis, mm. uh, food for animals, yeah. uh, returning when it dies, returning its uh, nutrients back to the soil so the next generation can live. Or the way it moves, spreads some yeah. nutrients or something. Yeah, there's, uh, you know, there, you can go on visual, audio, beauty, you know, aesthetic beauty, the sound of leaves rustling in the forest. There's all kinds of things, and we humans tend to be very singular in our designs. Uh, we like want our artificial designs. Like when we're designing a product, yeah, we end up with, oh, well, it just needs to do this one thing and then we can bury it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we want to be comfortable, you know, so we'll bulldoze, you know, the comfort stuff and we'll install an air conditioner, you know, to be comfortable. But the air conditioner doesn't do anything else. Well, it sucks energy out of the system. Right, so its uh, function is to charge us money as well. So. Well, of course, of course. You know, so we've developed this very complicated system. And, you know, so here's a really great example. It's, it's one of the things I encourage people to do, and the ridiculousness of our infrastructure system is that when you plug a, a laptop, you, you know, you were just plugging your laptop into my solar system here, yes. and my, my system here is about 18% efficient. Well, if you go back to the mainstream, like a Starbucks or your house, and you plug your computer into the duplex there, into the electrical outlet, you're at 6% efficient. So, so if, you, if you trace the electrons that are charging your computer all the way back to where it came from, mm. okay, natural gas or oil, you're, you got to go thousands of miles. you got to go thousands of feet deep into the ground where all the stuff is extracted. As soon as it comes to a generating plant, you have a 66% drop on thermodynamic stuff. So you're 33% as you're coming out of the generating plant. And then this shit gets, you know, uh, transmitted, distributed for hundreds of miles through these big, huge wires that make our landscape really ugly and have all these EMFs and shit. And then it goes through transformers, and by the time it ends up at your duplex, it's 5 to 6% efficient. So in other words, if I had a 1,000 BTUs of energy at the start of this, by the time it gets to where it does useful work, there's only, you know, well, let's take 100. At 100 BTUs, there's only 5 or 6 BTUs left to power your computer. That's mm -hmm. insane when you piss away 95% of the stuff just to get it just to where you need it. Just transporting it long, long distance. Yeah. Okay. So if I put up a solar collector out here, I'm just pointing to the solar collectors right underneath the awning and out there on the greenhouse. You know, those solar collectors are 15 to 18% efficient. So I'm already six times more efficient than the fucking utility. Whoops, the, the, the effing utility companies. Oh, that's all right. We're, we're going to, this is an adult okay. podcast. <laughs> Good. 
<laughs> that's that's a really great. Um, well, the same thing. The same thing with your car. You know, the the rubber actually turning on the wheels. You know, are only two to three percent of the gasoline that you put into your car tank. It's crazy the system that we have. If you know, I always say that if a professor or a teacher uh, assign you to design a world that uh, has any kind of effectiveness or efficiency, if you answer that question with our current infrastructure, you're going to get an F. <laughs> so, but we're slowly making progress. I, I don't want to be totally pessimistic here. We're starting to slowly wake up, see the light of day. I just hope it's it, we do it in a timely fashion before Mother Nature kicks our ass. That makes sense. Yep. Um, so, the next question I'm sure might be, you know, you could, I'll just let you answer it the way you hear it. What does community mean to you? Mm. Tough question, tough question, because it, it comes up with all kinds of stuff. I spent the last eight years looking for a community, lived in Sieben Linden in Germany, uh, spent uh, two years in Lost Valley, was on the board up there for a while. Could you give us a brief introduction to Sieben Linden and Lost Valley? Just yeah. so, so people who d haven't heard of these things know what they are. Yeah, Sieben Linden, there's a wonderful documentary called A New We, and it talks about 10 eco-villages in uh, Europe and how they're changing uh, life. And the very first one that they go through is this place called Sieben Linden, which basically stands for seven elm trees uh, between Hamburg and Berlin. And it was one of the uh, largest, oldest, most successful eco-villages in Europe. Uh, it was a uh, uh, descendant of Zeg uh, with Dieter there. And, uh, you know, they're up to 200 some odd people now. And they pretty much rock on uh, all the different principles of uh, stuff. And then Lost Valley up in Oregon, just east of Eugene, is probably the only viable community west of the Mississippi that we have. And by viable, I mean a community that's been around for more than five years, that has some financial uh, um, meat to it, that doesn't grow pot, um, and that has like more than 20 or 30 people in it. I think you really need more than 20 or 30 people to uh, have critical mass and, and distribute the labor that it requires uh, so that people don't get burned out. Um, what's wrong with growing pot? There's nothing wrong with growing pot. Um, I smoke it myself. Um, and uh, I, I think the issue that I have with some of that is uh, it's part of our capitalistic society when a pot plant is valued at $1,000 per plant and the feds make it illegal. And here in California, we're actually seeing the price of pot increase after legalization, where in Oregon, it dropped through the bottom, through the basement within a year or two. And just the politics of it. And I guess for me, it's the cartels it's the stuff behind the industry that has a very strange uh, dynamic to it 
when they tell me stories about how there was a gunfight, um, you know, three or four weeks ago because somebody raided somebody else's pot grow in their greenhouse and cleaned them up. Uh, and it's just, it, it, it's, to me, it's a reflection of the greed of the money behind it that I have probably have an issue with too. And the other one is, you know, it's, it's uh, one of the questions I asked a lot is, Europe is way more advanced than we are. You know, people were smoking pot in Amsterdam brown cafes, you know, way before people discovered it in the United States. Why is pot not legal in Europe? Uh, why doesn't Germany, Scandinavia, and other enlightened countries not have that? Because of the THC impact on developing brains for young kids. So that's one of the issues I have. Sometimes I think of a lost generation. I meet a lot of people. I'm a child of the 60s, and I meet a lot of people that did too much LSD in the 1960s and effed them up for the rest of their life. What does the effect of that look like? It's, uh, you know, have not being able to have a, 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 a continual train of thought. I th- you know, I love hallucinogenics. It, it, it opens us up. It frees us up. But like anything else, if you do it in excess... Uh, it can really mess with our brains and stuff. And so the jury, I think, is still out. I wish we had some independent research here. Uh, I think a pot is a wonderful antidote to the pharmaceutical bullshit that's going out there right now with opiates and drugs. And, you know, take a look at the difference between alcohol and pot. But, mm-hmm. you know, I don't have any issues with people growing pot. What I think is a community based on the income, the sole income to make the community go on pot, I have some issues with. Hmm. Uh, and I think it's a longer discussion we can do here. Yeah. Well, to get back to Zeebenlinden, uh, yeah. I had a brief experience with Zeg, and this is what it was. I was at, in Australia at the Australian Communities Conference at Muramura, outside Melbourne, in 20... Uh, yeah it was 2013 i think november 2013 and zeg showed up or a couple people from zeg Mm -hmm. and they did a uh, a, some kind of meditation demonstration and among other things and they were talking highly about their their place and then i thought oh i really want to go there now so then my sister and i went to berlin and we contacted zeg and and said hey what can we do and this was just um last summer 2017 okay and they were kind of "Mm -hmm, okay yeah you can come and do this it's and it was in it and it was a a very small window we we didn't we couldn't figure out how to get there in time Mm -hmm. um and now you say something about zeg changed well it's interesting that you say that because uh the current zeg now i think they bought some abandoned army base or something uh, somewhere in Berlin, but it is a, sh- I mean, it, there's absolutely no relationship to the original Zeg from the 1950s and 60s. Oh, Zeg was, nice. Zeg was a huge community in the 60s founded on free love. Yeah, that's what they were telling us. About. And that was, and now they're basically, uh, they've gotten into an education thing. There's, there's one thing I got to mention that is a beautiful gift that Z- the original Zeg has left us with. That is one of the key things for a successful community called the Zeg Forum. And we practiced this up in uh, Lost Valley. And I was 
party to it. I actually rocked it one night in the Zeg Forum. <laughs> it's it's like a version of the Roman Forum where you get into the middle of a big circle and anything goes and you can speak your truth. But you have to have a really highly trained Zeg Forum facilitator that brings your shit out. Mm. because we tend to protect ourselves with our ego and with all our layers oh and shit. And, and, and when they, oh, it is very terrifying. And you have to have a real place of love and kindness. Uh, there's a couple rules in Zek forums that nothing can leave the room and you can't talk about what happened inside the forum for 24 to 48 hours. It's the kind of thing... Because it's so raw. It's the kind of thing that's so fear-making that your mind wants to say... Uh, we don't have to do that. That's cults, right? Like that's just a culty thing. Like yeah. let's avoid that behavior. Well, that's one of the, you know one of the things that Zeg demonstrated to the world. And there were two. There, there's two things in communities that will not work: free love and religious zealots. Mm. Okay, any community that's founded on free love, it's wonderful shit. Don't get me wrong, but after six months to a year gets to be a big soap opera, okay? And people start, you know, it's like polyamorous stuff. You know, people, yeah. a lot of communities practice it, and eventually a lot of drama comes into it. Interesting. And the same thing with religious zealots. I mean, dare I need to mention Guyana and Jim Jones and what happens to religious zealots uh, and what they do with communities. And so Zeg was the poster child of free love, and they had a wonderful run for probably 15 to 20 years, and then everything started splitting up. And two beautiful children came out of Zeg, Tamara in Portugal and Zeben Linden in uh, Germany, the two Dieters, the two aged hippies. And those are very successful communities now because they learned all this stuff. And so I think Zeg now is back to an educational form more than a working eco-village with hundreds of people in it. That's what it seemed like to me. I remember distinctly a description of their... Um, men's houses and women's houses so mm -hmm. if men wanted to hook up and women wanted to hook up and then also a, a a romantic house with like a big fireplace so if you wanted to make love in a mm -hmm. in a kind of particular setting it it, it seemed so uh open about uh sex and mm -hmm. that that's something that americans have a problem with so it was it was enlightening to me to hear about that. And Tamara still practices that to this day. You know, it's on my list to go visit Tamara someday, but I've heard directly from people that have been there that if you're going to go there for more than just a weekend or a week, the very first thing that happens is the, uh, I forget what her name is, the, the goddess kind of interviews you and talks to you and assigns you with somebody and you get to fuck your brains out for uh, whoever she assigns you with uh, for the first week or two to get over this whole sexual tension stuff mm. so that you can get to the art of living together uh, and you know so yeah there is that dynamic. Zeeban Linden does not practice that. Zeeban Linden is more of a uh, on the other side of more of a governance uh, more of a higher end uh, experience than Tamara is, uh, and I've experienced. I have a lot of friends that's even Linden, and I always said when I first started my search for my tribe, for my community eight years ago, that after five years, if I couldn't find it in the United States, I'd move to Zeeben Linden because I'm German. I speak native German, and I just I I, I don't know. I kind of like it here. Uh, <laughs> you're, you're being Northern California. Northern California. Yeah, yeah. I like. I love the weather here. I love the culture. I love the energy, the intellectual and emotional stimulation of the Bay Area. There, for me, the Bay Area has some sort of a nexus in the world. It's some sort of a chakra that comes out of the Bay Area that's very, very cool. 
And so my search, uh, by the way, I have to give uh, total credit to Diana Christian, uh, one of my students. Diana Leaf Christian, right? Diana Leaf Christian. Diana Leaf Christian will probably come up a lot in this podcast because her name is quasi-famous in the intentional community circles for having written something like the Bible of intentional community where she reported and still reports on and gives talks on what are considered successful versus failed communities. And that includes the definitions of those communities that failed and said, yeah, we, we couldn't get it together, we couldn't make it work. So anyway, you might... Uh, hear Diana Leaf Christian come up, and I do recommend that you check her stuff out. Okay, back to the interview. Thank you. Sorry about the interruption. Uh, one of my students invited me, I think it was 2008-2009, invited me to hear Diana Christian talking about eco-villages at the, in downtown Sacramento. And I told my students, I said, why the heck would I want to go learn about eco-villages? It sounds kind of cool, but I got a pretty full schedule. So anyway, you know, I got dragged into it, and it changed my life. And uh, it was kind of sad, though, after about a year of exploring here in Northern California to realize there was not a single eco-village, not a single commune left from the 60s. And the only thing around here was co-housing. And co-housing to me is, uh, boy, Chuck Durrett does not like me saying this, but it's basically glorified condos for rich white people with a common kitchen area. That's my short-term take on co-housing. Yeah, co-housing to me is something that I'm trying to understand. I'd like to interview some people in it that can give me better insight. But presently, I feel personally... I hope you don't mind me saying like a, a little bit the same, a little bit skeptical of... The reason is the reason being, it seems to me that when people have doors that they can just close, they mm-hmm. will close them. Mm-hmm. And what you end up with is just kind of a neighborhood, in the woods maybe, but nevertheless, it's just a neighborhood, and and that doesn't fix all of the problems with the. Our, our self-destructive capitalism and that kind of thing. Yeah, if you take a look at uh, Chuck Durrett's history, Chuck Durrett bought co-housing from Denmark. Uh, he uh, got his degree at University of Copenhagen in Denmark, and he bought, in the 1980s, he bought that concept over the United States. And his first uh, very successful one, I think it was the N Street uh, co-housing in Davis, the student co-op, that was the very first one in the U.S., and then the big one was Nevada City co-housing. And, you know, if I were you, I would interview uh, Chuck, because Chuck has quite a history. He's very successful with the stuff. He's a really cool aged hippie, Mm. Uh, and him him and I are, 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 we know each other pretty well. And I've thought many times of going in that direction, but uh, after having sat in some board meetings and having spent some time in Nevada City co-housing, I felt exactly the way I felt when I owned a townhouse in the Bay Area. And so to me, it was just the same shit as major suburban development because, you know, at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning, everybody drives off in their car at this co-housing place in Nevada City and... It, I was alone. And I said, I came here to experience community. And so the only time they get together is for communal meals. Well, shit, I can do that anywhere. You know, I can do that in a hotel. And so to me, the beauty of eco-villages, and like Zeeb and Linden, and especially Lost Valley, 
is, yes, I do like my privacy. I do like closing my door. But, you know, whenever it strikes me, I can go outside my place and I can go walk into the lodge. I can go walk into some areas and I can have a conversation with some cool people. You know, and sometimes five or six people will join in. And then all of a sudden, that's what community is all about. Any time of the day that you want. And so as I got through the evolution of community shock, you know, after a few months of living there and giving up my own ego and then understanding the the community ego, because communities have egos of their own and they're just as dysfunctional or functional as our own egos, you have this really beautiful uh, yin and yang of do I want to be alone do I want to curl up and, and deal with my own pain? Or do I want to go talk to one of three or four people? And so, like, my one of the anecdotes I'll give you is in my second interview at Lost Valley, I felt like I was on trial. It, it, it got me back to my divorce with the court systems. And I said, what the fuck is a community treating me like this for? And I just went down this rabbit hole. And, you know, I just got back and curled into a fetal position. And then I said, you know... I have three or four people here that I really have a loving relationship with. Let me call and see what they say. And so that, to me, is the nectar, the marrow of a community, when you can reach out to fellow communitarians for a shoulder. That's and a so, lovely way to answer And so I remember an email. I remember we were in the middle of some lawsuits, and we had some dude that was parking in our driveway and overnighting and there was an email that got sent out and my immediate reaction was it was one of the neighbors in the lawsuit that was gaming us and so I got a very violent response from two or three people about how Fred was just uh, throwing fuel on the flames and without me making a response two of my close friends responded to that lady you know, says, give Fred some love. He's in a really bad place right now with the interview and all that stuff. And for me, the love that I felt from the community, you know, of allowing me to go through the pain, you know, that's the beauty of the tribe. That's the, you're, you're not alone in your own personal pain. And the community will come to you and nurture you. And so, you know, that's part of the dynamics, the social dynamics, I guess, of having, you know, more than 30 or 40 people in a community. Uh, so that's one of the things I'm still searching for. You know, I can't, I can't do it with, you know, 10, 20 people. There's a lot of communities out there, you know, with just a handful, a dozen or two dozen. I, I really think you need more than 30 or 40 people for some critical mass on that. Um, All right, that's, that's great. Well, um, if, is there anything else that you would want to add to the question about what community means to you it's it's a belonging it's uh you know i i i get tired of the soundbite that us humans are designed as social creatures that we all need to find our tribe you know i i i used to believe in that definition and for me now as i'm getting older um i value uh having other people around uh, being here in the deep forest, uh, isolated in this remote place in Winslow here is wonderful for a while, uh, but I'd rather experience it with other people. So I always enjoy visitors like you guys being here for a day or two.
you know, there. Oh, I, I, my, my. I'll conclude with this. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, one of the uh, fundamental uh, Buddhist guys. You know, he's right up there with the Dalai Lama. He was he just always, recommended to me by someone else. He always. I have several books on him, and he said the next Buddha will be a community. And that's. I rest my case on that. <laughs> <laughs> How? Okay. Here's here's my next question. Are you ready for this one? Sure. Okay, I'm, I'm rearranging these as we uh -huh. go, okay? But I'm thinking yeah, cool. that seven questions is going to be enough. Seven okay. questions. All right. Are you human? That, 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 that goes me right back to the philosophy question, uh, being human or human being? <laughs> <laughs> it's my first initial response to that, the Heidegger thing. Uh, no, no. Um, and how do you identify that way? Uh, the untethered soul, my Buddhist practice, is um, here, here's what the untethered soul, a summary of the untethered soul. I am neither the emotion or the experience. I am the observer of my emotion and my experience. I like existing in the space in between. <laughs> That's a very deep, a, deep answer. That sounds like a fun place to be deep. Oh, yeah. Because, uh, you know, we tend to be so full of ourselves. And so when I meditate and I'm truly into an empty mind, which is impossible to define, I am just an energy. Um, there's a wonderful book called The World Without Us by Alan Weissman. And the end result of that is that every creative thought that we have, every idea that we have, creates photons. And a photon can never cease to exist. A photon is forever. And so sometimes I always believe that the purpose of us human entities, our vessels being here, is to just create shit, just to have ideas and float <laughs> stuff out. And I love Alan Weissman's last thing on the last page of the book. He says sometime, you know, 100,000, 200,000 years from now, there will be these photons floating around and, you know, light hundreds, thousands of light years away. And some other intelligent entity that can sense these photons will realize that wow there's these you know photons that are coming together maybe somewhere long ago some intelligent life form existed that started these photons that'll be humans <laughs> you know awesome. you know he's he i have to put his book into perspective he starts off by have, making a case for new york city manhattan and if all the humans disappeared, and if you can imagine New York City just being there without humans, that the island of Manhattan would return to the way it was with the Native Americans and that Dutch guy, Peter Stavine, whatever his name was, within 150 years. That all our creations of all our steel and glass and all our smart engineering, nature would take it back within 150 years. And that's a mind blower. That's awesome. I remember that about the, the pumps giving yeah. way, yeah. the subways flooding pretty quick. Like, yeah. 
It all starts. And Hurricane Sandy. <laughs> when Hurricane Sandy hit, I opened up his book. Yeah. And I read. And it was like a prediction of everything that happened within the week after Hurricane Sandy. Because mm-hmm. the pumps were off. The diesel generators ran out of fuel. The subways were flooded. And nobody noticed. It was business-backed as usual. What personal projects or collaborations are you presently most excited about? Ooh. I'm excited about going to San Francisco on this coming Thursday night and networking with like-minded people listening to Paul Hawkins' Drawdown Project. Paul and, Hawkins, is he wrote, he was part of that, um, what is it, ecological capitalism or natural capitalism? Yeah, the uh, well, yeah, he, he co-wrote uh, Natural Capitalism with Amory Lovins, Hunter Lovins, but he started his career, Smith Hawkins Landscaping Tools, and he wrote the seminal book called The Ecology of Commerce, and then his most wonderful book is Blessed Unrest. And uh, what I love about Paul Hawken, I get, I'm getting excited just thinking about it, <laughs> is see, seeing a dude, 73 years old, and his travel schedule makes me tired. <laughs> and he is still rocking it 40 years later, and he is taking on the climate mafia. He's taking on the groupthink of scientists around the world with a solution that we humans can actually undo this. And it starts with teaching young girls in third world countries about Planned Parenthood and if we can avoid having 9, 10 billion people on this planet and if we can educate young girls to not have 15 kids in Africa and Asia. And then the second big one that we can all do something about and I'll kind of conclude it with this is that we Americans waste 60% of our food. The Europeans about 40%. If we can reduce that, we don't need to cut the forests and decimate our natural uh, environment to have more farmland to feed more people. We don't need more to grow more food. We need to stop wasting it. And I thought I was pretty cool about it, and even Lost Valley is very cool about it. But try taking a look at your compost pile. Mm. I have a very expensive compost pile. And I think that when I'm putting stuff in the compost, that I'm not wasting food. And that's what Paul Hawken enlightened this old fart to, that yes, I am wasting food when I throw it in the compost pile. Because when I bought those eight eight papayas at Berkeley Bowl for 99 cents, and I only ate two of them before the other three went rotten, or five went rotten, Mm -hmm. I'm throwing away food. Because some other poor dude could have picked up those eight papayas and ate them with his family at night. Okay, last question. Mm-hmm. How can we all realize more human happiness together? Ooh, happiness is overrated. Perfect, done. End of interview. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. All right, nice response. Ooh, <laughs> cut right through it. <laughs>
That was Yuki Song by Deep Forest from one of my favorite albums, Music Detected. While Deep Forest is normally known for raw vocals recorded from around the world, and the gimmick, if you will, being particularly unheard voices from indigenous peoples taking center stage in a kind of global electronic world music, Music Detected seems to represent a peek into the imperial sections of the world, with English and Japanese lyrics appearing for the first time, as opposed to the typical lesser-known languages and dialects of native forest dwellers. This is a moving song to me. It's about a particular set of feelings, such as when someone is confronted with deep appreciation, love, or the relief of meeting someone, and the powerful joyful emotions of reunion and surprise in finding another person that can mean something to you. In these emotions, we can see purpose in having met someone where normal meetings with strangers or familiar faces even may seem less spectacular. This is somewhat of a romantic position one finds oneself in if we allow ourselves to be swept away by these feelings. And so even if you don't believe in fate or feel romantically, it can increase your optimism to find this person, in the sense that optimism is the belief that all is well and is the most ideal that things can be. I'm not sure if it's ever discussed that optimism, at best, peers through a storm of life's sufferings to get a glimpse at relief, or if optimistic feelings are also meant to imbue us with some sense that even the suffering is right, in some way, because of any rectifying force or events such as romantic feelings or chance meetings with people you seem destined to encounter and interact with. However, the imagery of water in the song is reminiscent of these very questions. As we imagine everything flowing effortlessly the way water does, and yet over a solid terrain. What would a world be like that is only liquid, only ease, and no solid, no resistance? This metaphor is clarified by the chorus lyrics, Throwing Sparks at My Frozen Angel, which speaks of liquefying, melting, and a transmuting from solid to liquid, from striving to ease. It implies that the existence of such processes, which genuinely go some way to easing our suffering, can be as mystical as meeting someone new to you, and growing in relationship with them. It is not just a fantasy, it is not just a placebo or panacea, but a poignant solving of life's problems in a recognizably beautiful form. You can go out there in the world feeling like something is missing and that missing thing can just fall into place suddenly and the person delivering it might even be part of that missing piece. And the whole time you suspected or wished just that kind of thing would happen. If life is here to guide you and not mislead you with such romantic notions, and romance can be said to be not too dangerous an emotional commitment, that is, it's not too crushingly disappointing to believe you will find relief as you expect to, then the existence of this kind of meeting is an overwhelming confirmation of a benevolent existence and may change your life in an instant for the better. I think there are benefits to these feelings, as it may put you in touch with an instinct, a mission, an intuitive spirit journey, or something even more mystical. I am attracted by the passion and the soulful singing, the words and emotions left unsaid, as the singer is taken aback by all the anxiety resolved by a meeting. No, 
In addition, I admire the familiar feeling of renewed passion and striving because one aspect of relief is that it means we might not change our workload in life, but direct it to something suddenly more constructive or meaningful. And the transformation from a grinding feeling of wondering how one's loving energy may be used into a feeling of applying oneself to love is about the joy of giving. And with or without sacrifice, since both forms of love may be important and valuable, there is also a strange joy mixed with sorrow at finding a task in this bittersweet plane of existence called Earth. As for the song's actual construction, we can almost hear in it that the world is filled with ancient traditions, some of which we all know about, various African cultures, Chinese and Asian cultures, hybrid sounds, and so on. And Deep Forest is known for playing on these and seeming to have or conjure a global perspective because of its awareness and curiosity about humanity's incredible diversity and unity. The song exemplifies hybrid styles, and I personally find this keen awareness to be a comment on our present day as pasts merge together and re-separate, as they may hopefully gain the power to do. And what I mean is, hopefully, with a greater awareness of the unifying world of human beings, being aware of their own diversity, we might also glean opportunities for those cultures which are feeling trapped, stuck, colonized, or otherwise inextricable from the parasitic nature of imperial civilization. Hopefully, with greater appreciation and love, we can liquefy the walls to pathways of a richly diverse future. And instead of everyone being forced into or voluntarily joining one global hegemony, those who are going the other direction can bring the positive awareness aspect of globalism into their fated journey and free path, and that path can become more free. The timelessness of the journey and the excited, reflective emotions seems to place us as a species where we are and comment, this is good and there is hope. The incorporation of both new and ancient advanced sound technology seems to reassure us that we are on both a singular and pluralistic journey together as humans, and it seems to give us a personal invitation to be a part of that journey in a very individualized way as well. Ideally, we can find many of these situations in life. Maybe the message anyone could take away from this optimistic and yet realist view is that should we make ourselves available to positive fate, we may be surprised at how easily and readily it takes us on a journey of discovery of how life wants to fulfill us absolutely and completely. And perhaps this song's message is that the place where you find yourself is just precisely where the universe has placed you, on your personal journey for your own good. The song could be said to be a poignant memory of recent events, past events, or even the continuation of a struggle, like someone learning to settle into a commitment, a marriage, a joining of two souls and two fates, and the work that that encompasses. I often feel that way with friends I've made, though I'm not married to them, because I sense a constant sense of commitment and usefulness with my giving. They have given me a diversity of purpose besides my own interests and goals and enriched my life. That is what good community feels like to me at times. If you are still listening to this, perhaps we can speculate the artificial intelligence program has decided to spare humanity a little longer in anticipation of our acceptance of one another. In conclusion, this is what Yuki's song evokes. Or perhaps these are living thoughts that are attracted to my brain cloud so they can express through my voice as I journey with and through the musical artists of Deep Forest. 
I suppose a nature walk through an actual deep forest might accomplish something similar, and I suppose my thoughts tend to this sort of thing naturally, but it sure is sweet and moving audio to me. As long as we are talking about things that create more happiness for the creatures we find ourselves as this time around, I think it's worth having mentioned and played it. Thank you for listening, whatever you are, and please be happy and create happiness in whatever communities you find yourself in. Next time, we'll speak with Janie.